This is Money Stories, Episode 14, The Effect of Student Loan Debt on Vocations with Anne Follin. Hi, and welcome to Money Stories, a podcast where we interview fellow Catholics and Christians so we can all learn from their personal money stories. I'm Caitlin Kano, a wife, mom, financial counselor, and student of all things stewardship. And I'm Diana Rojas. I'm a fourth grade math teacher, a children's book author, and a young adult parish missionary. How are you doing today, Caitlin? Good, Diana. How are you doing? I'm well. I'm doing well. I was looking through uh, some books earlier. I'm all about reading now that we have all this extra time on our hands. And I was looking through our Bible study, and uh, I was struck by uh, a very familiar scripture that we're all we're all familiar with, I'm sure. Um, do you remember which one I told you it was? Was it, um, I forget the exact chapter. I want to say it was Matthew 6. 7, um, 6, yeah. Yeah, I'll have to look it up and I'll put it in the notes of the podcast. But either way, the one that says that we can't be uh, slaves to two masters, mm-hmm. either you serve God or you serve your money. And, you know, I was thinking about that because during this, this quarantine time, I was just had a lot of time to reflect. And I realized that those times in my life when I, um, put money first. And I really focus on like, how can I make more money and make more money and make more money? Um, my kind of spiritual, my, my spiritual life kind of fell to the side. And, and it's, it's interesting because every time I think that happens for every person, when we put money first before God, um, we can't serve God properly, which is, I don't know, just that I was reading that and it just really resonated with me this morning when I was reading that this morning. So I'm not sure if you have any similar experiences with that or. Yeah. Yeah. So that, that comes from our faith and money matters Bible study. And there's, I mean, so many great insights in there and so much great information that people can pull from, from that study. And it's funny how when you look back at the study, there's little things that depending on where your, your mind and your heart is at that day, mm-hmm. those passages speak to you differently than they do on other days. You know, how, yes. how, how you experience that. I, I experienced that personally. And um, as you're talking about that, I'm thinking about uh, the different... I, I listen to podcasts all the time as I'm working, which is, I don't know if it's the best thing to do, but um, <laughs> there was one that I was listening to recently and it was talking about the effect of the pandemic on the gig economy and uh, people having side hustles and, um, you know, these, these different things that people were doing prior to the pandemic that that was like their ticket to savings. You know, mm. that was how they saved for a down payment on a house or put money aside for, a business or, you know, a life goal because their income was, um, their primary income was usually all living expenses because we always let our expenses hit the threshold of our income unless we're being very deliberate about building a savings in there and building, you know, these different goals into our income. So then they were turning to side hustles, which is a great thing. It's good to have that extra income, but I think it's going to be interesting coming out of COVID and coming out of the pandemic to see if those side hustles don't come back for a while, mm. what are people going to do to still be saving, but also keeping in mind that we're called to be stewards of our income? I don't know. What do you think about that? You know, that's so funny because I am one of those side hustle people. I'm a teacher. I'm a fourth grade teacher, right? Yeah. And so, I mean, I'm never going to be a billionaire, which is fine, but I do a lot of things on the side. And that was one of the things that I realized during exactly what you just said. Okay. I don't have these side hustles anymore. I'm not making that extra income. Like, so how am I going to change what I, whatever I do have, my means I do have, how am I going to change that? So I kind of had to sit down and just kind of be realistic with myself about my needs versus mm-hmm. things that I'm getting because I want to get them. Um, and just doing that, you realize how much we spend, or at least I spend, let me not speak for everyone, on, on things I don't need, like a new pair of shoes, or I definitely need that 
I don't know, that extra tub of ice cream or whatever it is that we need to get or we want to get. Um, so so I, I definitely evaluated what my needs versus my wants were. And I kind of started setting aside extra money for saving. So money that I would have been making normally and I wasn't making. So I wanted to just pull a little extra out of my savings so that God forbid something happened, which funny enough, it did. My washing machine broke just this week. And that's not a, that's not a fun purchase to make. It's not a fun super cool purchase to make, but luckily I was doing those things and I'm able to have that extra little bit of money to pay for my new washer and dryer. It feels super adult to be like, oh, I'm buying a new washer and dryer, but super that's where adult. we're at. <laughs> <laughs> and thank God you had the, that, you know, sense beforehand. Yeah. So I don't know, maybe this pandemic will have some hidden blessings and that people will be aware of, you know, needs versus wants, but also that access to things like side hustles and the gig economy may not be something that's always available. We may not always have the means to make extra income. So we need to look at the other side of the equation being our expenses to affect, you know, our net worth, but also affect generosity and everything else. So yeah, yeah. no, I I find that to be really interesting. So yeah, thank you for bringing that up. Yeah. I'm sure that could be a whole nother topic we could talk about one day because there's so much we can go into about that. Oh goodness. (laughs) Yeah. Today, I'm super excited to talk with our guest is Ann Follin. So she is the chief executive of Ann Follin and Associates. She's in a creative service firm based on Washington, D.C. and New York, whose clients include Bristol-Myers, Squibb, and the United Nations. But even of greater relevance for, for our audience today especially, she is a member of the board of directors for Matter Ecclesia. She's a, it's for the fund of, I'm sorry, Matter Ecclesia Fund for Vocations, a nonprofit Catholic organization that makes grants for student loan debt relief for young men and women with vocations to religious life. So I'm excited to talk with her today and I'm, we have a lot of really fun questions for her, so I'm excited to bring her on. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you so much for having me on your podcast. Of course, welcome, Anne. And I was listening to your remarks before, and I also, I agree that there will be some blessings that come out of this pandemic. I think, um, you know, for myself, I used to eat out. Uh, I was actually, I was doing my taxes. I was taking advantage of the um, lockdown to get a jump start on my taxes. I got them done much sooner than I ever have before. But I, you know, I discovered I eat, it's, you have to see it all laid out on an annual basis to realize that I eat a shocking amount of Indian carryout. <laughs> And during the pandemic, and I love it, it's my favorite food in the world, but during the pandemic, when the restaurants have been closed and you've had to sort of fend for yourself, you realize like, you know, when it comes down to it, I can actually cook a meal for myself. That is an option that I have. And that's, that's you know, on, on a daily basis, it doesn't feel like a life-changing amount of money. On an annualized basis, I have the Excel spreadsheet to prove that it's thousands of dollars. So. Yeah. Yeah, so and that's, it's so interesting because that's actually, I was just talking to my friend, I think this weekend, and I was telling him like, I took this Bible study and it's super cool because it gives you a spreadsheet. I love spreadsheets. Like I mm-hmm. make spreadsheets for everything. So, <laughs> but when you said, like you said, when you put it in a yearly basis, you see how much that one Starbucks or that, that one night a week of eating out adds up on a yearly basis. You're like, whoa, I can definitely learn to cook Indian food at home if I want to, right? <laughs> Not as well as they do, but you know. No. It's a trade-off, right? I won't have yep. this. I won't have this. The spice profile and everything as good as they make it, but I'll have an extra two thousand bucks. Yeah, there you go. 
That's great. Oh, so, and today we're going to be talking about um, kind of focusing on the problem because we are so blessed to have you on for two podcasts. So after this one today, we'll, we'll bring you on to be a little bit more positive and talking about the solutions. But today we're going to be focusing on how student loan debt is affecting vocations and um, just the problem in general. So we're probably going to leave on a heavy note and that's okay because we'll come back and, and talk <laughs> about the positive things that your fund is doing um, to affect that. But before we actually go into how it's affecting vocations, can you talk more broadly about student loan debt in general? Um, how is it affecting the average graduate that maybe just graduated a few weeks ago? Um, and what kind of effect can they expect to see student loan debt having on their lives? Sure. Well, I haven't seen, um, I don't think the statistics are out yet for the, um, the total debt um, burden for the class of 2020. But for the class of 2019, the average graduate walked off the stage $33,000 in debt. Yes. Now, some of them, of course, graduated debt-free. Some of them had more. Some of them had less. The median figure, like everybody knows the difference between average and median, right? Okay, so the median figure was $17,000. Half of the student debt burden was above that figure. Half of it was below. But on an average basis, the class of 2019 average person graduated to be precise, $32,731 in the hole. And so to answer your question, it's a crushing burden. I mean, $33,000 is a lot of money. I live in Washington, DC. So the, the cost of living here is very high, obviously. But in most parts of the country, $33,000 is a down payment on a house, or at least a big chunk of a down payment. It's seed capital to start up a business. It's serious money. It's not you know, pocket change or lunch money. And to, to, to just let that sink in for a minute, you're 22 years old, you've just finished your education for most of us, some will go on to graduate school, but for most people, you get to the starting line, $33,000 in the hole. And that's a, that's a big, big burden. So <clears throat> the other thing to, to remember is that most of these young people start start you know at age 22 start their professional careers with this huge debt burden that they incurred before they really were able to understand what they were getting themselves in, into it's it's amazing to me quite honestly that in an at an age when they can't legally drink alcohol they can sign their lives away for the next 20 years to take on these you know six figure debts so you know, forget about discerning marriage or starting a family or pursuing any other little dream you have. Forget about buying a house or launching a business. If you're a 22 year old who's $33,000 in debt, you're gonna take whatever job you can or whatever, jo mm -hmm. whatever jobs, plural, you can get that are gonna help you meet that $400 a month payment that comes due every month. In other words, you start out life as a wage slave and what that does to you psycho-spiritually, as well as the practical consequences, is really damaging. So, wow. yeah, that's, I mean, that's, that's the reality that we live in. And I will tell you that um, this is a new thing in my lifetime. I was one of five kids in my family. Um, my dad sold life insurance. My mom taught school. We weren't, um, you know, an upper middle class, wealthy family. But it was possible back in the day to have um, a family of five and send them all to college without burdening them with debt. It required sacrifice for sure. I mean, you know, we didn't have a new car every year and you know, we wore hand-me-down clothes and stuff like that. But normal families could send their kids to college without taking on debt. And that's just simply not true anymore. 
Yeah, those numbers, Anne, are just, I don't even know. They're out, like, it's just so amazing how large those numbers are to me. Yeah. Um, I didn't realize just, I'm, I'm one of the, the fortunate people who didn't have student loan debt. So to see these numbers, it's just really eye-opening for me. And what you were saying really struck a chord with me about these graduates, and I'm not too far separated from that. You graduate college and you just, you're not even thinking about, am I going to get married? Am, am I going to, am I going to join a religious life? Am I going to have a family? I just need to make money. I just got to get yeah, whatever exactly. job I can have. Right. Um, so that's such a reality that we live in, but I wonder also how much that plays a role on, on vocations, especially um, if you're not able to even think about anything past your student loan, like that has to play a role on your, your ability to discern vocations. And I know what I've learned through, through both of you ladies and, and all, all of this talk that we've been doing is that there, this is a huge problem as well for, for young adults trying to discern religious life um, because a lot of, a lot of uh, different orders won't even accept some people if they have student loans um, can you give us a better idea of how that works and what that looks like as far as um, how student loan debt really affects the ability for young adults to enter into their vocation of religious life? Sure. Um, you know, most religious orders, you take vows of poverty, chastity, and obedience. And if you're taking a vow of poverty, if you're not going to be earning income, you can't have debts that you have to pay back. You know, it wouldn't be just for somebody to say, yeah, I have these debts, but I'm going to walk away from them and, and stiff my creditors because I have a, a call from God. You know, God, <laughs> God doesn't call you to injustices. So mm. you, have to, you have to resolve your student debt first. There are um, a few exceptional orders that have um, endowments or financial reserves of their own, and they can, in exceptional circumstances, pay off the debt of an aspirant who wants to, to enter formation, but those are very, very rare. What, what typically happens is that a young person will um, you know, feel the call, will, will discern the vocation to religious life, find the community that they feel is their home, and then if that community also feels that they're a good fit, the vocation director or the prior or prioress or whomever will say, we agree, this is your vocation. You would be welcome to test your vocation in this community. Come back when you're debt-free because we can't accept you if you have this overhang. So wow. that's, yeah, so that's, um, that's typically how it goes. And do you have any like numbers as far as, you know, how many young adults are trying to enter versus how many get asked to come back when they don't have debt or how many religious orders are affected by this on, a, on any kind of yearly or, or basis at all? Sure, I would say that probably all of the religious orders are, are affected. I think I would, I would be surprised if there was a single religious community that didn't have um, applicants who have this problem. Like I, I, don't, I don't know of any I don't know of any, personally, I don't know of any religious communities where everybody who applies just shows up at the doorstep with no student loan. Right, um, right. The, the Mater Ecclesia Fund for Vocations, of which I'm a board member, doesn't track um, statistics at the national level. Mm -hmm. um, so I don't know if we can really extrapolate from our own experience to tell the broader story of uh, vocation life in the nation as a whole. But what I can say is that we get on average, we being the Fund for Vocations, we get on average 15 to 20 applications per year. We make grants on an annual basis and we get about 15 to 20 applications per year. There's a couple of important things to know about that. 
first, we would get a lot more applications if we advertised, if we promoted mm. ourselves at all, but we yeah. don't, we don't. And for the very simple reason that we can't make app, we can't make grants to all of the applicants we get who find us just from word of mouth. So right. why would we put the word out like, Hey, come apply to us for a, for a grant. You won't get one, but <laughs> go through the process of filling out this paperwork like that. Yeah. You know, that wouldn't make sense. So of the ones who find us just from word of mouth, we get, like I say, in an average year, 15 to 20, we turn away more than half of them because we wow. just, yeah, because we just don't have the funds. So like I say, we don't track statistics in um, a meaningful way, but if just as a rule of thumb, you can extrapolate from our experience to the nation as a whole, that means that if money were no object, we would have more than twice as many people entering religious vocations as we do today. Wow. Yeah, a lot of ifs in that sentence, I realize, but yeah, that's- Yeah, yeah, but it's it's a good, at least for me, I'm very visual, so it's good to realize that it's about half. Like we have, yeah. we could have twice as many more- At least, nuns, at least. Brothers, priests, yep. you know, if, if this wasn't an issue. So, wow, very eye-opening stuff there. Yep. Very eye-opening stuff. And it's true. I mean, we hear a lot about, um, you know, the decline in religious vocations and the crisis in vocations and all of that, and that's true. But there's two- um, there's two simultaneous, let's say, uh, vocations crises. One being that we need to make it, we need to make it more obvious to young people mm. that the religious, the, the vowed religious life is a live option for them, that it's not some crazy thing that used to happen. And then we also need to remove the financial obstacles. Yeah. And, and hearing that, that just kicks me in the gut to think that we could be, have twice the number of priests that we have now. And I'm a mother of a 13-year-old and 11-year-old boy. And we've been very, um, throughout the time we've been blessed with, with them, we've been very aware of making sure they're exposed to mm -hmm. um, other young men who are discerning priesthood or are young priests so they can see the normalcy of it. And I think that's right. the double cost of this is when it's not normal, it's gonna have a multi-generational impact on my kids who are not gonna see it being normal. They're gonna see priests who, God bless them, they're in their 70s and their 80s and they're not exactly. gonna be able to relate. Exactly. So, oh gosh, that's, that's amazing. So, um, and I'm also wondering, I'm thinking anecdotally, um, and when we were doing our episode prep, we had talked about this. Um, when I'm thinking of someone who's affected by this, I'm thinking of the person who went to you know, private Catholic institution, their student loan debt is in the six figures potentially because they are expensive colleges. And then this person is drawn to the nonprofit world, the missionary world or whatever it is. So now they're earning minimal income because they have that helper heart. Right. And their student loan debt is, you know, going to be a lifetime of, of debt that they're going to be shackled to this. So that's what I'm thinking of anecdotally. And I'm wondering, um, is that true? And then with what point did you see this being something that um, is going to be a, bar a barrier to vocations? Like what brought you into this world? Um, well, first of all, you know, I, I think um, anecdotal though it is, it's an anecdote that I've heard a lot and I've been affiliated with the fund for vocations for 10 years now that, um, you know, there's an upside and a downside to the beautiful unworldliness that so many of our super devout, you know, faithful young Catholics um, seem characterized by. They really want to study theology. They really want to draw, draw close to God. They really are not the most financially literate kids in the world. 
And at some point, um, you know, we're, we're called to be uh, as innocent as lambs and as wise as serpents. And at some point, you know, you got to get in touch with your inner serpent. You've got to actually do the math <laughs> and think, wait, you know, is there another way that I can pursue this fire without taking on $100,000 worth of debt? Hmm. And so, to, you know, to answer your question, um, it got real for me. I remember it. It's one of those flashbulb memories, you know, that where you remember exactly where you were and what you were doing. The year was 2010. <laughs> <Same> and <thing>. <laughs> I, was, I was in my kitchen in my apartment on Capitol Hill in Washington, chopping vegetables and getter, you know, one of the rare occasions when I wasn't phoning out for Indian. <laughs> <laughs> fixing myself dinner and listening to a radio show where the guest of honor was my vocation, what my spiritual director, um, uh, brother, now father, James Brent from Dominican House of Studies, right up the road from my apartment in Washington, D.C. So brother James, as he was then, was um, the guest on this phone in radio show. And a guy called in who said, hey, brother James, um, you know, thank you for your time, blah, blah, blah. I feel like I have a vocation to the priesthood, but I haven't bothered discerning because I have so much student debt that um, even if my vocation were real, it wouldn't be a, a viable option to pursue. Hmm. And Brother James's response was, I really encourage you to de-link those two considerations. Go ahead and start the discernment process. If it turns out that um, your vocation is actually to marriage or to the laity or whatever, then no harm, no foul, just go on and live your life. But he said, I will say that if, you, if your vocation is real, um, our faith is not a magic parlor trick. I'm not saying that a sack of money will fall out from the sky, but it is not unprecedented in my experience that if a vocation is real, a benefactor will appear. So he thanked Brother James very, very sincerely. And then the next caller phoned in and that was that. And a couple of days later, I was meeting uh, for spiritual direction with Brother James. And I said, hey, I caught your radio show. I don't have children of my own, but um, why should that be a barrier to me stroking enormous checks for college <laughs> and having that all-American experience? Um, can I help that kid or do you know anybody else? And he said, I don't know about that guy and I don't know any young men with vocations to the priesthood who have that problem. But he said, as a matter of fact, my French tutor is a young woman who has a vocation to the Nashville Dominicans, the congregation in Nashville, Tennessee. And she has student loan debt. Why don't you guys get together? Maybe you can help her out. So we got together for dinner. He introduced the two of us and we met up for dinner. And, um, you know, in my, because again, like I was saying, um, I went to college in the 1980s when normal middle class families could send their five kids to college. And so I was thinking, you know, how much could this possibly be? I could write a check for $5,000 if I had to, maybe even $10,000. <laughs> I know, right? A little bit more than that. <laughs> oh my goodness gracious. So she sat down and she had all of her stuff and this accordion file and it was super organized and there was a spreadsheet like I like. And um, the bottom line was north of 100. And I will, I will own it now. I mean, a lot of uh, time has passed and water under the bridge. But in that moment, I will admit my first reaction was one of judgment. It was, mm -hmm. what is the matter with you that you have this enormous debt? This is crazy. And so I started asking around um, to you know, younger friends, people with friends 
who had college age kids and just saying, hey, quick thought exercise, how much would you guess that four years, 100% debt financed at a top tier private college, room and board in the whole shot, how much would that set a person back? And they all said, I don't know, like 85, 90, 120, somewhere in that realm. And I thought, okay, so apparently I'm the last person in the United States of America who was unaware that it's possible to spend $100,000 on college. But, um, you know, at that point, I also just said to the young woman, um, by the grace of God, now fully professed, um, Sister Ann Dominic, then Karen Maholwald, we're not talking anymore about me writing a check. We need a strategy. We need a team. <laughs> and um, we made a strategy and we built a team and then we discovered the fund for vocations. And um, I was asked to join the board of directors of it. Karen got a grant and 10 years later, here I still am. <laughs> Wow. So those numbers are very extraordinary. And your story is, is really interesting how you learned about not only student loans, but all um, the vocation and the fund for vocations that, you, that you're a part of now. So thank you for it, sharing that story. It was a very compressed learning process. I mean, just in one night at a place that doesn't <laughs> exist anymore, but um, on Michigan Avenue called Colonel Brooks's Tavern. Wow. I learned um, A, that it's possible to spend more than 100000 on college, which was news to me. Mm -hmm. B, that um, so many people graduate from college, uh, you know, responsible, like good, normal people graduate yeah. college up to their eyeballs in debt because college has become so expensive. And C, that this state of affairs has a major uh, constraining effect on vocations to religious life. So in the time it took to, you know, have a cup of coffee and look at a spreadsheet, the scales fell from my eyes for three major big revelations. Yeah. Yeah. So that was a big night for you. A lot of learning that happened that night. It, well, it changed my life. I mean, there are, yeah. you, there, it was one of those situations where there's a clear before and an after mm, that was, that yeah. was 10 years, that was 10 years ago. Yeah. So both of you have mentioned about normalizing the process of discernment, which to be really honest for me was not a normal process of life. I am one of those cradle Catholics. I went to private elementary high school, um, I went to UCF for college, but discernment was never anything that I learned how to do or that I should do or that religious life was even an option for me. Um, I never even thought about like, why does someone want to become a priest or a nun? It was never a thought for me. So assuming that I've discerned and I've mm -hmm. gone to my spiritual director and I've, I feel a call, a deep call within me that this is what God wants me to do is to become a religious, um, assuming all of that, that I've gone through the whole process of that, um, and I have a very large sum of student loans. <laughs> so assuming all of that, um, what, what, what would that look like? What was the likelihood that I would be accepted? What's the likelihood that I would be rejected? Um, what's a, a response that I could possibly get or, or would possibly get from a religious order if I came knocking um, and I know this is what I want to do, but I have all this giant debt with me alongside my desire to become a nun. What, what, would, that, what would that look like for someone? Okay, well, so um, the main thing to remember is that your financial situation is just one of many factors. And religious communities will consider the, the, the first things first. So the main thing that they, you know, the main, um, let's say, goal of discernment is to figure out whether you're a good fit for them and vice versa, because it really is like a family. It's like, um, you know, entering it, marrying into, entering, becoming part of a family system. They have their own charisms. You know, some of them are teachers, some of them are nurses, some of them are, you know, they, they have different 
works in the world in different charisms. They have their own cultures. They have their own requirements. So that's the, the, imagine, you know, if you like spreadsheets, you probably also like process flow diagrams. So imagine that that's the first step on the process flow diagram. And if it's not a match, then your financial uh, situation doesn't even become relevant. But if it is a match, then what usually happens is that you're formally accepted, um, but that you can't actually enter and start your formation until your debt is resolved. And I will say okay. also that, um, that's where I know that we're going to touch on the mechanics of how the fund for vocations works in the next episode, but that is where our particular business model becomes very important because what we do, the fund for vocations is that we take over your student loan payments while you're in formation. Mm -hmm. There's a reason that formation lasts for seven years. It's a big decision and there's a lot of, uh, let's say, let's call them false positives where you think that you have a vocation to religious life, but in the seven year process of formation, you discover actually my vocation lies elsewhere, whether it's to a different community or to um, married life outside of religious life period. And you know, there's no shame in that. There's, it's a big decision and there's a reason that it's structured deliberately to take seven years. Uh, we don't, let's say that um, you have $30,000 in debt and your monthly payments are 400 a month. We start paying 400 a month. We don't pay the 33 all at one whack because that creates a subtle but very powerful sense of obligation that distorts the discernment mm. process. So we just take the burden off of you month by month so that you can figure, you can try it on. That's really awesome. That's super amazing. I love how you guys do the month by month. Um, it's almost like in what I was thinking about, it's almost like one less thing that month that I have to worry about. Like I can it's focus on discernment and, and formation and, and whatever else is going on. And that's one less thing that's going to impede my ability to really clearly see what, where and what God's calling me for. So that's super awesome the way you describe that. So exactly. And, and once you are accepted, you know, once your community says you're accepted to enter, you can, um, you're accepted, you, you can enter and start formation as soon as you resolve your debt. That's when, in our experience, people really start kicking it into high gear. They'll move back home with their parents or with some other family member who will let them live rent-free. They'll work multiple jobs and throw everything they earn at their debt to get it down to a size that somebody else, like, say, the Fund for Vocations, will be in a position to take over on their behalf. We can take on, and, and frankly, that's the way that we make decisions. If it's a small amount, you stand a much better chance of getting that last mile funding from us. Mm than if it's a giant amount and you haven't done anything about it. So they'll start selling their possessions as modest as those usually are. They'll start working like crazy people to throw everything at their debt and whittle it down. They'll slash their expenses. They'll set up GoFundMe accounts. But once they have that letter of acceptance in hand, it becomes real and they start you know, waking up to the full horror of their financial situation <laughs> and trying to address it. Yeah. Wow. Well, that's... It's, it's important things and I'm glad you shared that with me or with us, the listeners and everyone listening, because, um, you know, it's, it's important that the no that we get or that we possibly could get from the religious order. It's not just a no for the money standpoint. It could be oh, a right. no for many other reasons. So that's no, just that, one factor in they'll in very, the they'll very, they'll very seldom say no because you're in debt. They'll say no because you're the not, not the right fit. Or we, we think that, you know, you have something going on that's making this a false positive or whatever. But if they think that you're a solid vocation, they want you, they want you as much as you want them, but they just mm -hmm. can't in good conscience, accept somebody knowing that the only way that person can enter is if they deal right. unjustly with a creditor. 
And Anne, I'm assuming the impact on the church as a whole, we're going to have short, medium, and long-term implications, right, to a big problem like this. Um, so what are the potential, we talked about the short-term implications, and that's someone having to delay the discernment process or, you know, walk away for a little bit. Um, and we can talk about that some more. Um, and then there's also the medium term, which is my kids not having access to young priests to be aware of and think about that as like we were saying, normalizing vocations, but there's also a long-term, this will have effects for hundreds of years to come. I'm sure because the priests are so impactful on everyone in the community. So what are some of the potential long-term implications, medium and long-term implications of, of this problem? Sure. Um, you know, I think you hit the, hail, the nail on the head when you said that um, part of it is, is just the echo effect, that the more priests and religious there are, the mo more priests and religious there will be because they're a visible witness in the world and the light bulb goes on for young people like, oh, wait, this isn't just something, you know, that was in the Middle Ages that doesn't really exist anymore. Um, part of my, my role as a board director, uh, a, a member of the board of the Fund for Vocations, is to read vocation stories. And we get, to my mind, a surprising number of them that go like this. Um, I went to fill in the blank, Franciscan, or, um, you know, one of, or Christendom College or something. And I met my first religious sister in habit, and I hadn't realized that that was still a thing because I saw the sound of music when I was a little kid with my grandparents, and I thought that this was a thing that had gone out with the Second World War. And even, you know, very devout Catholic families, unless you live in a big city, or unless you make it your business to seek out religious priests and sisters, you can go your whole life without ever seeing a priest or a nun in habit, a religious priest or, or nun in habit. And of course, if you never see it, it's easy enough to conclude it doesn't exist. So, you know, exactly to your point, part of the long-term implications of having more priests and religious is the short-term need to have more priests and religious. The, um, you know, the other harsh reality is that it's important for people to, to heed the call as soon as they hear it. Um, you know, when, when Jesus says, come, um, put down what you're doing and follow me, it's, it's important when he calls to say yes and not to say, yeah, let me just um, bury my father or pay off my student loan debts or, you know, whatever. Otherwise, take care of mammon over here. Mm -hmm. it's, it's really important. There's a school of thought that says, hey, if your vocation is real, and it's a well-intended thought, but it's just wrong, that says, if your vocation is real today, then it will be real tomorrow, and it will be real next week and next year and five years from now. And that's just simply not true. Life isn't like that. A vocation can be very real and yet still be lost if, to delay or distraction. And if the person has to stay in the world, it's hard enough to persevere in religious life if everything else in your life is arrayed behind you to help make that happen. The more obstacles that you have in your way, the less likelihood that the person's going to make it to final vows. That's just how it is. And if they have to, if they have that letter of acceptance for their community and then they lose that momentum for a year or two years because they have to, you know, be a wage slave, it's it's very likely that the vocation will be lost. And that's and it won't be because the vocation wasn't real. It will be because people are it will be because people are human beings. And that's just something that as a church we really can't afford. Mm 
we need we need healthy vocations. We need healthy vocations to marriage. We need religious sisters to run the hospitals and the communities and the hospitals. We desperately need contemplatives as as rare as that vocation is. We need people whose whole lives are devoted to prayer and penance. The health of the church, of the mystical body of Christ, depends on vocations. And this is a problem that money can help solve. There, you know, there aren't that, as my Irish, uh, blesses his soul, late father used to say, kids, there are some problems you can solve just by throwing money at them. And <laughs> there aren't many, but there are some, and this is one of them. We can't solve all of it by throwing money at it, but we can solve a lot of it. I, I could just listen to you talk all day. You, <laughs> I know. I really I know. could. Like, I'm learning so much. And, I, and I, we, we've spoken a little bit before, and it's just never, never escapes my, my curiosity of everything that you're saying. It just rings so true. Um, as a young person, you know, I, I am that person that didn't see a lot of vocations. I saw nuns in my schools, and I never once thought, how did they get there? Why did they get there? I just didn't, didn't ever ring, ring a bell with me as to, how they got to that point in their life. Um, so I, as much as it sounds not the best, but money can help solve a lot of these problems. And, you know, I think of Caitlin's kids and like, how awesome would it be if there was more priests that they could go visit and be friends with and, right, and right. know, and then, yeah. So it's just, yeah, I'm soaking it all in because it's just ringing so true with me right now. Um, bringing it back to the, the issue of, of student loan debt. I did my own little bit of research and I'm sure you know a whole lot more than I do, but what I found was that it's about 65% of college seniors nationwide. So mm -hmm. about two out of every three of them that graduate have debt and have debt close to $30,000, which is what you said earlier. Yeah. That to me is a large sum of money. Um, and it's something that is affecting two out of every three young adults. It's a lot of people it's affecting. It's um, a lot of money for a lot of people. It's huge. Right. It's, it, it's, it's, it blows my mind to be honest. Yeah, I know that fact, as an as a nationwide total, the total student debt um, burden is bigger than any other kind of debt, except for mortgages. It's bigger than every other debt combined. Imagine all of the nation's auto loan debt, all of the nation's credit card debt. Add that up, and it still isn't as much as student loan debt. That's really, honestly, really crazy to me. It really yeah. is. Um, yeah, as a teacher, that's hard to swallow sometimes because I just want education to be free and everyone to get a good <laughs> education, but that's not neither here nor there. Um, but I know that financial advising is not exactly what what your what your uh, your fun vocation is about. But just kind of in that school of thought about so many people are affected by this, and you have a little bit of knowledge as far as um, the money aspect of it. Is there any mm -hmm. advice or tips or anything that you could tell young people listening that? can help either maybe pay off their student loans a little bit faster or, or come out with a little bit less student loans than what they would have assumed was possible or any kind of tips or advice you could give to our listeners? Sure. Um, you know, part of it is, you know, advice doesn't necessarily always sink in because money's more than math. Like you can look at the, seriously, like everybody knows that two plus two equals four. You know, most people, if they've gotten through high school, a reasonably good high school can do basic math, but there's something magical about money where you think that the, somehow the rules of arithmetic are suspended when it comes to your dreams and your life. So, so um, with, with the due humility that, um, you know, any advice that I might give 
bumps up against that powerful tendency to magical thinking that, that people are prone to when it comes to money, I would say this, uh, two related piece of it, pieces of advice. The first one is, and this it borders on you know, heresy at this point in American life, and that is don't overestimate the value of college. Um, you know, it's become an article of faith that college is the golden ticket to the middle class life. And um, there's a lot of research out there that establishes that the lifetime earnings of a college graduate far surpass those of non-graduates. And that is true, but all of those studies are done on kind of a blended basis. And any blended data masks some really important disparities, which is to say that um, an, a non-college graduate who's, say, a master plumber or an electrician or some other kind of skilled tradesman is going to make much more than somebody who has a college degree if that college degree is in, you know, basket weaving from the college of what's happening now. And especially if that basket weaving degree was debt financed, they're going to be in a much worse situation than the master plumber or master electrician. So, so the first piece of advice is don't overestimate the value of an undergraduate degree and don't underestimate the power of debt to wreck your life. Don't, this, you know, this gets to delayed gratification and to being able to uh, project into the future, but don't burden present, don't burden future Diana with debt that present Diana feels is a good idea at the time. You know, it's it's a difficult thing to do, especially when you've only been alive for 18 years. <laughs> but, but try try to you know harness that power of imagination. And you know, if there's smart people, listen to your elders. So then, so um, the second thing is, you know, I I revere learning for its own sake. I really do. I I would hardly you know be in the business that I'm in with without that orientation. But recognize that learning for learning's sake is a privilege. And if you're genuinely, if you are a genuine scholar, and I'm here to tell you, not everybody who goes to college is, but if you are a genuine lover of knowledge and a genuine scholar, and you can pursue that knowledge for its own sake without crippling yourself with debt, then Godspeed, go for it. But for everybody else, if you don't know why you're going to college, except that that's just what you do when you graduate from high school, think twice. Hmm. If, if, you can, if you can do it because it's what you do without going into debt, then okay, you know, it may not be what I would recommend you do, but it's not crazy either. But if you're going to college because that's what you do and you're going to take on a bunch of debt, give yourself permission to take a year off and work. And, and until you can either go to college without taking on debt or until you have a more clear vision in your head of what your future is going to look like. Very few 18-year-olds know who they are, but the journey to figure that out should not happen while the meter's running to the tune of $25,000 a year plus interest. There's other ways to find out who you are. So, so if and when you, you do conclude that college makes sense for you, you know, this is almost unforgivably impolite to point out, but colleges are a business. They're not just these, you know, pure citadels of learning on the hill. They actually are in business. And this was a new revelation to me when one of my business associates had college age kids that he was taking on when they were high school seniors, juniors, I think, when he was taking them on visits to college. The admissions counselor started, you know, negotiating, started bargaining. And I thought, that's how it works? Like you can, you can, uh, 
handle with these people? Okay, good to know. So if you're, it, I think this is you know true for the private colleges, but um, if you can negotiate, once you fit only, again, process flow diagram style, only if you figured out that college makes sense for you and you can't pay for all of it yourself, start negotiating the sticker price with the college. Then once you get the sticker price down as low as you can, start doing the research to find out what grants and scholarships you're available. I'm, I'm sorry, that are you're eligible for. There's always more money lying around than you're necessarily aware of. So make it your business to find that, to scrape up every nickel that you can. Off, get the sticker price as low as you can, scrape up all of the money off the table that you can, and don't debt finance more than you absolutely have to. I'll also say that my own home state of Virginia has this program where if you do two years, your first two years, your freshman and sophomore year, at an accredited community college and maintain an acceptable GPA, you're guaranteed admission for your junior and senior year to the state, to the University of Virginia or to other you know, prestigious four-year schools. So that's a huge, huge cost savings, not only because the tuition is much lower at community college, but also because you can probably live at home while you're doing those first two years. Yeah. It's a trade-off um, because you know, part of what I loved about going to college was the friendships that you make on day one of your freshman year. And you're not going to have the same kind of social network from your college experience if you just go for the last two years, if you transfer in, that you would have had if you'd been there for the whole four years. But um, it's, that's a real loss and I don't wanna minimize it, but it's a trade-off because you're, you're saving yourself paying off $50,000 worth of debt. So you know, think hard about that. And then finally, the last thing I'll say is that at its heart, this whole student debt crisis is being driven by you know points that that both of you i think at different points of this of this podcast have made which is the normalizing of debt for this crisis to have reached the proportions that it has people have to have bought into this big lie that it's somehow normal for college to cost a hundred thousand dollars and for it to be okay for a 22 year old to start out life thirty thousand dollars in the hole and so my, if you take nothing, if you remember nothing else from this, from what I've said, if you take nothing else away from, from what I've shared, please remember this. It is not normal to start life 30,000 in debt. It's not normal. It will affect you. And if you can avoid that mistake, do it. And this has been amazing and so insightful. And um, I know we, we're kind of talking about more of the heavy stuff in this um, in this episode, and when we bring you back, we're going to be talking uh, more about the solutions. And I know we did provide some solutions and tips, but um, this has just been so eye-opening to me. I was telling Anne when we were doing our prep, and Diana as well, that I've been in the world of financial wellness for years um, on government contracts and in different nonprofits and things like that, and I was clueless mm -hmm. to the effect this was having on the church. So I'm just going to hope and pray that people hear this episode and understand the impact this is having, that we shouldn't be pushing our children to go to the big name school just because it's the big name school, that we need to take a step back and think, you know, what is this debt going to cost them in the long run, even if they're not discerning? Um, I would very much take a step back if someone proposed to me, if I was in my you know, 20s or 30s and someone proposed to me and they had hundreds of thousands of dollars of debt. 
Right. Like that could affect anyone, <laughs> no matter their vocation. Um, so I don't know. I just, I think this is a, a huge topic and I feel like we can go for, it's definitely a huge topic. And it also, um, you know, ties back to what your home training is like, because mm -hmm. for one thing, when you're 18 years old, um, a hundred thousand dollars, $200,000, they're just big abstract numbers. It's hard right. to get your arms around the practical consequences that different numbers of different sizes are going to have in your personal life. It's, um, it requires a future orientation and a, a level of financial literacy that very few people have both of. And there's also, frankly, um, I get very passionate about the subject because I think it's just unjust. I think it's unjust to, to let 18 year old kids sign their lives away when they just don't understand what they're doing. And the market in the real world, let's say, loans are, are made available and they are priced on the basis of the likelihood of return on investment. In this fun house mirror crazy world of student loan, where somehow the normal rules of economics are suspended because we wish they were, <laughs> a kid who's going to MIT to study chemical engineering can get a loan. But so can a kid who's going to get that degree in basket weaving from the university of what's happening now. And the MIT kid and the basket weaving kid will pay the same price, that their debt will be priced the same and they, their eligibility criteria will be the same. That is crazy. It's, it just, it's insane. And so it puts the burden on the kids of doing what, frankly, the people underwriting the loans should do, which is does this particular degree make sense to debt finance? because the, the creditors have no incentive to, to, do, to do that underwriting, it puts the burden on the kids. So they really have to ask themselves seriously, what am I gonna, as you know, leaving aside the knowledge for knowledge sake, which again, I'm a strong proponent of, but just as a purely rational financial issue proposition, does debt financing this particular degree make sense based on its lifetime learning potential? That answer is going to come back different for the chemical engineering degree from MIT than for the basket weaving degree from the other school. And the fact that, you know, kids are being put in a position to have to make these underwriting decisions is just unjust. Oh my goodness. This is so much. There's so much here. And I just appreciate you. And, and you speak so well to this. And I just feel like we can... <laughs> Go on for hours because I have a million more questions. But uh, I think well, I'm really looking forward to the next episode because um, you know the Fund for Vocations is doing some important work about resolving this issue. We've just hired a new executive director who's going to up our game and greatly expand our donor base and our financial positions so that we don't have to turn away more than half of the kids who come knocking. What a blessing! What a blessing you are, and what a blessing the fund is being, and. And uh, yeah, we're just hoping and praying this will be impactful to someone. I'm sure it will be because you had so much great information. And yes. like I said, I've been in this world for years and I was clueless. So everybody's is... got, everybody's got one piece of the puzzle, right? right. Um, I, like I say, um, I had had no idea that college could cost so much that it had to be debt financed and that it had such a, a destructive effect on the church. So yeah, eye-opening, but, but you're a blessing and we appreciate you. And thank you, Anne. And we're going to have you back next week and we're going to have a more positive note to, <laughs> to this topic, hopefully. But, um, but just having you here has been so positive. So thank you, Anne. Very much looking, very much enjoyed it and very much looking forward to next episode. All right. Have a great day. You too.
Bye for now. Bye-bye. For more information about Compass Catholic Ministries, including the various Bible studies and services that we offer, please visit compasscatholic.org. If you enjoy Money Stories, please share it with a friend. You may also like Compass Catholic's other podcast, Manage Your Money God's Way, available wherever you get your podcast. If you have any comments about today's show or suggestions for future shows, please email us at info at compasscatholic.org. Thanks for listening and God bless.